We'll be in the book of Jonah. Uh, so we just got two more chapters. So if you want to turn there, that's great. We'll be in cha- the last two chapters, chapter 3 and 4. Uh, I came prepared and I have blown it digitally so I can't read the small font because it's dark here. So I'm trying to do better. But you also got to have a backup plan because you never can fully count on digital. Who knows what could happen in the cloud and things like that. Anyhow, uh, saying goodbye. Saying goodbye is, is hard sometimes. We hate to say goodbyes. But if you think back on your life, there are some things you needed to say goodbye to. Uh, when I went to college, I needed to say goodbye to video games, and I needed to say goodbye to cartoons and nonstop TV, and I needed to go to A&M and study. I needed to go to seminary. I had to say goodbye to sweet A&M. That was really difficult. When I went from one ministry job to the next job, I had to say goodbye to some sweet people, but God wanted me to go somewhere else, and you have to sometimes just go. There's Sometimes there's just goodbyes. And there's good goodbyes. There's goodbyes we need to say. Of course, there's hard goodbyes. There's hard goodbyes to say goodbye to a loved one. There's hard goodbyes to say to your kids when you're hugging them and they're dropping them off at their dorm at college. Those are hard goodbyes. Goodbyes are a part of life. God had goodbyes for Jonah to say. and God had some goodbyes that Jonah needed to learn. Jonah had a hard time saying goodbye. Goodbye, fish. Hello, mission assignment. Jonah should have said. Goodbye, Israel. Hello, Nineveh, Jonah should have said. Goodbye to being famous and popular, the prophet to Israel, and hello to being strange and a foreigner. Goodbye, vine. Hello, sunshine and heat. Goodbye, anger. Hello, joy. Goodbye, prejudice. Hello, mission devotion. Goodbye, hatred. Hello, love. Refusing to say goodbye, Jonah let anger and prejudice continue his life and lead him to the brink of death. Chapters 3 and 4, we could spend weeks on this chapter, but I have one night, so we will not spend weeks. Uh, I gave you all pretty much all of my what I wanted you to leave with, so you don't have to write it all down. The main idea that I want us to walk away with and understand is God loves the world so much, he seeks to save the world by leading every person into repentance from sin and commitment to a life of obedience. Repentance from sin and to obey God. Jonah had been repentant. He's repentant in chapter 2 in Jonah. He's all worshiping God. God saved him and all these things. But you're going to see here in Jonah's, he's not fully who God wants him to be yet. He still has some skeletons in his closet. The biggest miracle in this book, it's a small book of four chapters, uh, is not really the giant fish we looked at last week. It really is the giant revival that's going to happen uh, tonight that we're going to look about, look at. This, the biggest spiritual mass conversion in recorded history. The Great Awakening happened in the mid-1700s. Second Great Awakening, sometime first half of the 1800s, saw millions come to, to believe in Christ and to follow Him. A large percent of the population at that time came to be saved. A good night for a Billy Graham Evangel- Evangelical Association is a conversion rate of 5 to 10%. Y'all ever been to a Billy Graham or Franklin Graham tent revival that they used to have in the masses? Not necessarily a tent. Now they do it in stadiums and all the things. Well, he didn't want a Corpus Christi. Franklin Graham did. And, uh, and they're like, if it, was a good, if it was a good time, a weekend, or however long it was, 5 to 10% salvation rate is fantastic. In Nineveh, we're going to see the number is 100%. 100% of the people, the Ninevites, they turned to God. 
Let's look in chapter 3, the first, uh, first four verses. Now, the word of the Lord, this is right after he gets vomited out, and there he is in Nineveh. Okay? The Lord has done his thing. He had his little worship time with, with God in the belly of the great fish. Chapter 3, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. God gives Jonah a second chance. Arise. This should sound familiar to us. It's kind of what he said to Jonah the first time. Get up, go to Nineveh. He didn't do it. He went the opposite direction, didn't obey God. God saves him through the fish and all the stuff. He praises God, and now here, because the second time, right out, vomited outside of the, the, the great fish, and he says, go, give you a second chance. Go, go now. You would think God could have said, you know, uh, I'm going to give this job to someone else, someone else that is a little, their heart's in it, they're a little more enthusiastic. You seem to not really want to do it, but here God is, is gentle, he's gracious, uh, and he, he's going to keep getting, he's trying to teach Jonah what he wants him to learn. He says, I'm going to give you a second chance. It says in the verse 3, it's an, the city of Nineveh is an extremely great city. Three-day journey and extent. Three-day journey extent, uh, I think, basically for him to get his message across to as many people as he needs to, it would take him three days. This is a, a mass city, a huge city. The outer walls were... 100 feet high. The city had a 60-mile circumference. Uh, there were about 1,500 guard towers and 15 gates, each named after one of the Ninevite gods that they had. And they had a bunch of gods, not just Jehovah God, uh, but a bunch of other gods. But here you see that God expects his people to carry out the mission assignment that he gives them. He expects Jonah to do what he's asked him to do. He's given him this second chance. So what are the results of Jonah now going to preach this message, uh, this warning to the Ninevites? What's going to happen? Look at verse 4. Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, here is his message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. That's all we have. Doesn't it sound like a gospel, you know, a prosperity gospel kind of a sermon? No, it's really not. It sounds very judgmental, and uh, it sounds kind of dark and ominous, uh, and this God is going to judge us. It's kind of scary, but that's what he was going to preach. A lot of the prophets' messages were like, turn or burn kind of a thing. It was, uh, uh, God knows how bad y'all really are. You need to change your behavior soon. And he gives them a timeline, a deadline, and that is 40 days. It is interesting that uh, I, I guess this is what God wanted him to tell. There's nowhere that God, God speaks only a few times in Jonah, and God never says, this is the message I want you to say. But uh, I hope that is the message. God for sure used what uh, Jonah says, because there's a great, uh, a lot of people come to turn towards God because of what he says. Verse 5, so the people of Nineveh, they believed God, proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth, from the greatest to the least of them, then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, sat in ashes. He caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by a decree of the king and his nobles. And he said this, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Cry mightily to God, yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. 
Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Great revival happens. The result is, again, everyone turns to God. Huge success. Uh, huge, uh, you think there would be a huge party. You think uh, the, 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 Jonah, in this case, is Billy Graham. And we had a 100%, 100% conversion rate. They all turned to God. And God is not going to bring the judgment He promised. He's not going to destroy them. He's going to be gracious. He's going to be compassionate. He's going to change His mind and not do what He said He was necessarily going to do. They met the conditional statement. They repented. They mourned their sin. They fasted. They did all the sackcloth and all this stuff. Uh, different customs back then, but it's basically they're repentant of all that they've done. Now, if you're not sure, are these really bad people, the Ninevites are really bad people. They, I'll get into a little bit more, but they, they're really, really bad, and they're really, really bad at the nation of Israel. They have been really bad. They will continue to be really bad. They're always the enemies of the nation of Israel. How many people are we talking? There were, it says 120,000 children in Nineveh, according to uh, Chapter 4, verse 11, and then it says, it says persons who cannot discern between their right hand and the left in verse 11 of chapter 4. So basically that many children in Nineveh, and if that's many children, then there's probably, they estimate about 600,000 people in the city of Nineveh. And they all turned from evil to God. Therefore God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them in verse 10 of chapter 3. What were the odds? Well, the odds were stacked heavily against Jonah. The odds of being successful in his mission were very, very low. From a historical point of view, it's easy to see why he tried to get as far as he could from Nineveh. The Assyrian kings were known for brutality towards their enemies. They would take their captives from conquered lands back to Nineveh, dragging them by pierced lips for hundreds of miles. Nice people. They would peel the skin off of others and they piled up enemy heads outside the city gates after they conquered them. Success wouldn't have been possible without God. But with God, it was inevitable. Even the king himself, the text says the king himself, and which exact king this was, I can't pronounce these names because they're not like uh, Fred or something. Adad, Nanrari III, or Shalmaneser IV. I'm glad we don't use those names anymore. Uh, they were those two kings reigned from 811 BC to 773 BC, probably the time of, of Jonah's time. The text says the king arose from his throne, laid his, aside his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth, sat in ashes. It seems highly unlikely that this is what would have happened. You see God doing a miracle. Like God somehow set up enough situations in Nineveh that they were ready for a change. How rare uh, is it for one man to walk into a hostile territory, give a simple warning about coming judgment, and everyone just turn to God? It's real, it's real hard. God saw the, Nineveh's, uh, the Ninevites' conversion as genuine because he held back his judgment. Um, only, only God can truly change people's hearts. Uh, but sometimes he uses circumstances 
to sway people towards the decision he wants them to do. And he kind of did this probably here. He often can use personal cultural biases to get people's attention. He did this in Nineveh. He may have used their own superstitions to convert them. 600,000 people say, I want to repent and turn to God. What do I mean? Well, the Assyrians, they, they assimilated the worship of the Philistine deity Dagon into their religious practices. Again, they worshiped many, many little g-gods. Dagon was this powerful, mysterious uh, god that supposedly controlled the seas and was revered throughout the Assyrian Empire. Probably heard the story of how when the Ark of the Covenant, uh, when it it was the the Ark of the Hebrew God was captured, had been taken to Dagon's temple, and the statue of Dagon had fallen on its face in front of that Ark of these Jews. That's recorded in 1 Samuel 5. Imagine, here comes this Jew, and it's the prophet of that God, and uh, he very possibly could have like bleached white by digestive juices, he was in the stomach of a great fish. He probably didn't smell and look the best. He shows up, and like a bad omen, he preaches repentance in the power of that very God. So God could have used some circumstances. There's also things and throughout the history of the city of Nineveh. They had a time there were earthquakes. There were devastating natural things that were happening to Nineveh. God was prepping the city of Nineveh for God's person to come and to give them a chance to repent. He was using all creation, which he does throughout this book all the time. God's using the wind. God's using the fierce storm. God's using the heat. God's using all the things. God uses creation. God uses nature to achieve his purposes. Perhaps that's what Jesus meant when he stayed in Luke eleven thirty. Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites. Maybe Jonah didn't perform a sign. Maybe he was the sign. Whatever it was, it didn't take them long within that three-day window, whatever they, or 40-day window they had, uh, they all repented. The king, and it went from the top down. The king set the example and everyone followed. He set a decree, and even the animals are doing things and worshiping that God. Just everything that's living is going to worship this, this God. The Ninevites, they believed God. They believed in God's power, believed would carry out a threat. Uh, Nineveh demonstrated their faith in, in a lot of ways in sackcloth, uh, that they did that. The entire population, from the biggest, most important, to the smallest, least important, they're all sacrificing. They're all worshiping God. They're all responding to him. Uh, the king issues this proclamation uh, that calls to cry for help to go out. Uh, so you see the city of Nineveh, they're all responding to God. So that's chapter 3, and then it ends with, chapter ten, uh, with verse 10. The people relent, re- repented, and so God relented to bring this destruction that he said would happen. Uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time, but a lot of different commentaries give a lot of, God doesn't change his mind. It's not like God's sitting up there in his throne and is like, I think I'm going to do this today. No, I want to do this today. God, God's plan, God's will, his ways are set in motion. Okay? So you kind of bump up at this, but I, I like... I like the sense that God is going to bring uh, judgment. There's always, God's wrath could come. God's judgment is going to come, but they're always with it as a chance of, but you could, you could change your action, you could do something, you could repent, so that I would then be compassionate and gracious, and I'll give you. There, there's a chance for God's 
for the Jews for sure, but also as he treats in other nations, other peoples, there's a chance of God's graciousness and compassion to be there as well. I don't want to spend forever and ever and go around and around. did God, yes, God knew he, God knows all time, God knows what every nation's going to do, God knows what he's going to do. He didn't change his mind. He relented and chose, I'm not going to send the judgment because based on what they did, they repented, they turned to me, so he didn't bring the judgment appointment. Now the nation of Nineveh, if you go in the rest of the Old Testament, Nahum is going to say, oh yeah, those people are still bad. It may, it may have lasted for a generation or two, but they went right back to their old ways, which the nation of Israel does as well, by the way. Uh, and, uh, and then they're back to, and then God did ultimately wipe the Ninevites out. They're, they're gone. So all that to say, chapter 3, you see this God that is, um, gives every chance. He wants to give these people, God loves the Ninevites, even though they're evil and even though they're corrupt. And for sure, Jonah didn't want to go there. <laughs> he, he really didn't want to go there. And he said in the beginning why he didn't want to go there. God, I know who you are. And you're a compassionate God. And I don't want you to be compassionate to them. That was Jonah's problem. That's why he went the opposite direction. God, I know you're going to be, uh, you're going to be compassionate. You're going to be patient. You're going to forgive them if they repent. And Jonah didn't want that. So this great revival happens. Then you're going to see the missionaries' misery in chapter 4. Um, you would think Jonah would be pumped. Man, God used me. He would be the big guy on campus. And, you know, I had 600,000 people, you know. Uh, but he's not that way. Um, it says, in, uh, well, look in verse 1. We'll just read the, whole, we'll read the chapter. Then I'll come back and break, talk about it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. Again, the Bible understates things often. Uh, he was furious, which you're going to see by his, by his actions. Good Jonah. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, was, it, was not this what I, uh, what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in love and kindness, one who relents from doing harm, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord asked him, is it right for you to be angry? Imagine the entire population of New York City was converted. Imagine the entire population of London or Las Vegas came to know Christ. Imagine everyone in Dubai, Beijing, and Baghdad, they turned their hearts to Christ. Words like amazing and astonishing wouldn't even begin to, uh, to describe this wonderful event. This is a scene worth rejoicing over and over again wholeheartedly. That's what happened in Nineveh, but the man of God that he used to accomplish the revival did not rejoice. He is displeased exceedingly. He is angry. Why is he angry? Because he knew God would forgive the Assyrians. If they re- repented... God would forgive them. And that wasn't what he wanted. He says, For I know that you're a gracious, merciful God, slow to anger and abundant love and kindness, one who relents from doing harm. So he, uh, he does what he had been taught to do as a prophet. He prays to God. Even in his anger, he prays to God. Uh, that's good. 
God can handle our emotions. He made us emotional creatures. It's probably not the best to always be angry at God, but he can handle us being angry, for sure, in psalms and lament and things like that. Uh, Jonah fails to recognize his privilege of being an instrument of God in this miraculous situation. You see a Jonah, you see a prophet of God, a man of God that is totally self-centered, locked into what he wants, and if he doesn't get what he wants, he's going to be the kid at H-E-B on the line that doesn't get that pack of candy that he wants, and he's going to throw a temper tantrum, right? It's much like Elijah that uh, he misses the joy of his situation when he's in a selfish state. Jonah here could be like saying, I knew it, God. I knew that you would go back on your word. You let those people repent, and uh, you didn't bring that judgment on them that I said would happen. So therefore, God, I'm a fool, and when I go back to Israel, I'm going to be an idiot. My reputation is gone, and, uh, and what purpose is there for my life anymore? He, he thinks in his way he's totally lost his purpose. I don't know about you if you know any ancient Assyrians. I don't know too many on my Facebook friends list. Um, but Jonah begrudged them. And sometimes, you know, we read a text like this and we think, Jonah, why don't you get over yourself and just love those people? I mean, come on, right? Let's put in a little bit of context in maybe some today's language. Picture Jonah as a Jew from the Orthodox part of New York in the 1930s. And God is going to send him to Berlin to preach repentance to the Nazis. That would be pretty difficult. Picture him as a 21st century Jew being sent by God to Mosul to cry against ISIS. Are we all signing up for that? His anger is much easier to grasp when we picture it in that, in that light, when we view it through those lenses. He wanted his enemies punished and not spared. You see in this chapter what a contrast between God's nature and and Jonah's. God is merciful and slow to anger, and Jonah is in the mafia. (laughs) He wants to take them all out. Jonah wanted to give God, the Ninevites, what they deserve. Swift, final justice for their hatred of the Jews. Jonah would, would have rather died than see the Assyrians saved. He basically says that, does he not? My life, it it should be over. God, again, is going to show his special grace for his angry prophet. He's going to end in in verse 4. He's going to ask two questions in chapter 4. First question, is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? Don't you love asking, like your kids, rhetorical questions? And they'll either justify themselves, or maybe they just won't answer it, walk away, or ignore you. But basically, God is saying... You know you're wrong, right, Jonah? God is asking, why aren't you happy about something I'm happy about? Why aren't you glad that I'm merciful? It's a valid question for God. You see here, Jonah has prejudice. He has hatred for these people. So much so that it's, he only demands revenge and destruction of them. He cannot view them like God sees them. So then the passage goes on in verse 5 through 11. The story goes on. So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat under it in the shade, till he might see what would become of the city. 
The Lord God prepared a plant, made it come up over Jonah, that it might be shaved for his head to deliver him from his mercy. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. Having a little worship service here with this fantastic plant that just showed up. But as morning dawned the next day, God, repaired, uh, God prepared a, a worm, and so it damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a, a vehement east wind. And the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint, then he wished death for himself. You just see this guy's all over the board with his emotions, right? I'm just worshiping this fantastic plant and shade, and the next, next morning he's like, I want to die. Uh, he's, he's, all over the, he's all over the place here. Um, God prepares so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, it's better for me to die than to live. I love God's patience. And God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? And now here he adds about the plant. Second time he asks a question, but this time he's going to say, not just the Ninevites, why are you angry about the plant, Jonah? And Jonah, it is right for me to be angry, even to death. Absolutely, I'm in my right. Probably stomped his foot. But the Lord said, You have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock? And that's how the book ends. It's <laughs> a great story. Jonah has a choice of some concerns that God's going to present to him. Jonah didn't want a perspective check. When God asked the first question, Jonah then runs off and goes out of the city for a while and is going to pout, find some shade, and get out of the heat. And hopefully, hopefully in Jonah's mind, he's thinking, God's still going to burn him down. That judgment's still going to come. He has that little bit of hope because that's what he wants. As he had earlier prepared a fish, so now God prepares a vine, probably a castor oil plant. This, this plant is going to shade him from his misery or his discomfort, it says in the NIV. Uh, Jonah is very grateful for the plant, much like Jonah is very grateful in chapter 2 when he's inside and worshiping God, that God saved his life. But how soon he forgets. Jonah is easily satisfied in this situation. Again, God is here at work in verse 7. He's, he's preparing Jonah, and he is now preparing a wonderful worm. God prepares and uh, uses a lot of different things to get through to Jonah, to try to get through to Jonah. Uh, this is apparently a, a so-called fruit grub, which attacks the grape. This special fruit grub was sent by God, and it damaged the plant, and it was not there anymore, and his shade's gone. He's in the West Texas heat now. It wasn't in West Texas. I know that. I know that. Another divine preparation. God then creates an east wind, the scorching, vehement wind. It's the biblical affirmation that God controls every element of his creation, can use any element in it for his own purposes. He's done it throughout the whole book. This wind, joined by a searing sun, did Jonah in. He faints and asks his soul to die. And then here comes the last few verses. God speaks for the first time again. In verse, well, in verse 4, he speaks the first time, and then now here comes the second question. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Is the anger you have causing something good to happen? Is there anything good of your anger? 
Now, if we want to talk about anger, there is for sure a righteous anger. Jesus Christ Himself, later in the New Testament, never sins, but He was angry. It's in the book. What made Him angry? They're selling in the temple. They converted the temple into a marketplace. And Jesus had enough, and He has a righteous anger, and He's angry. And that's okay to have a righteous anger. This is not a righteous anger. This is He's angry at God. He's not angry for God. So then God is only the way God can do. He asked basically two questions. or Whoever writes this down. And then it leaves open-ended. What did Jonah do? <laughs> Amazingly, in verse 10, God does not respond to Jonah's anger with his own anger. He tries to guide him through the right way to think about the matter. God tries to calm his prophet with a bit of simple reasoning. Uh, Basically, God said, you watched a vine get eaten away and got all worked up with concern and pity over the vine. Now that vine was something that just came to you. It wasn't here yesterday, and now it's here, and then the next day it's gone. But you're so attached to this vine in your shade, you're going to throw a hissy fit about that. And you didn't labor for it. You didn't create it. You, had, you, you did nothing to make that happen or to make it go away. You did nothing to make it grow. It was just there. Think about the real value of this vine. Does my prophet, God is asking, does my prophet love a one-day wonder ground, uh, uh, gourd vine more than my eternal mission? That's what God is saying. You're more attached to this vine and this temporal pleasure that you have in the shade and you're out of the heat. You care more about that and now that's gone. Than, and you're, t- you're saying, based on your reaction, Jonah, me the guy that creates the vine and all those things, but not only that, I created also the Ninevite people. They're human beings. They're created in my image. I, I create them. I love them. You're telling me I shouldn't be compassionate and loving and care about those people. That's your situation, Jonah. Now, look at God's situation. You love the vine that much. Can I love Nineveh at least that much? Look at all the poor, poor innocent, ignorant people. Love them with me or love your prejudice. Which will it be? You see here that uh, Jonah has this prejudice and hatred. It's going to lead him to a concern for self, while love and pity leads to a commitment to help and to save. Sad truth from the story is Jonah was more upset about that soulless plant than 600,000 souls who would face eternity without God. It wasn't Jonah's best day. God still loves him. Jonah couldn't move out of his comfort zone, his own ideas about right and wrong, his own sense of justice. He couldn't see that God truly doesn't want anyone to end up in eternity's hell. Some people, however, just won't be counseled. You know anyone that's set in their ways? They mistake their righteousness for God's God's wrapping their limited understanding in a rag of holier-than-thou behavior, and not even God himself can change their minds. When you and I get to a place where we love to tell God what he should or should not do, that's a dangerous place to be. Because a sovereign God doesn't take orders from his creation. Does he? 
If he did, he wouldn't be sovereign, would he? He wouldn't be all-powerful, all-everything, all-knowing. God is going to do what he knows is best for the most people, for anyone who will receive his blessings on, on his terms. God is the one that set the terms. We don't get to set the terms. It's a valuable lesson that Jonah needs to learn. It's a valuable lesson that we need to learn. Is it right for you to be angry? You see here Jonah's, Jonah's progression through his story. Now, you know, there, there's other time in his past, in Jonah's past, he was, a, he was a national hero. He was the prophet that they, God used him to, to expand Israel's territory and everyone loved him. But then here comes this mission, which is, you're going to our enemies and you're going to give them a chance to repent. And God expected Jonah to be okay with that. Sometimes God gives you tough orders, tough tough calling, tough things to do. And I would say generally that's true of all Christians. Is it easy to evangelize? Is it easy to disciple? Is it easy to read God's word regularly? Is it easy to get up every whatever whenever you need to go to church and do those things you should do? Is it easy to love unconditionally? Is it easy to forgive? Now, But I also say individually, he may have something that he wants just a certain person to do. Maybe you. Maybe me. Be open to what God has you to do. And even if it costs you to get out of your comfort zone. I don't say be unwise or be unsafe. God for sure is going to protect his people. Um, but we live, we live in, a, in a Western society that is, if, it, if it makes me the least bit uncomfortable, the AC doesn't work, I'm out, man. I don't, I, if there's a little bit of rain, I don't know if I can make it to church. I don't know what's happening. There's things falling from the sky. I'm not sure what could happen. Just kind of this, I mean, doesn't following God going to cost us something? It, it costs God an awful lot to make a way for us to have a relationship with him. Uh. God loves the world so much that he seeks to save the world by leading every person in it to repentance from sin, commitment to a life of obedience. Some reminders, God's world is bigger than our world. God's love is bigger than his wrath. God wants to use us in his mission if we will love people as he loves. And this is the part where the Holy Spirit convicts. We just looked through the whole book of Jonah in three weeks. How's your hate list? Who's on your list that God can't save or shouldn't save? Or maybe a group of people. Maybe a certain nation. Compare that to God's love list. How many people should you and I learn to love? Because God loves them. See God's mission for your life, no matter the cost. Cost Jonah a lot. God used him. Repent of your sins. God is a God of graciousness and patience. He gives us second, third chances. Let God replace our anger and frustration with his love for people. We 
we live in a, and for sure our, our America is becoming more of a, I, this is, I don't know if I should say this, it's going to come out wrong. Um, I am very grateful to be an American, Great, very grateful to be born in the state of Texas and to grow up in this place because there's a lot of worse places out there. nationalism can never be more important than God's love for people. I'm not against nationalism. Jonah was very proud of being from Israel and his people and the covenant and all that stuff. But God called him to go love some people that weren't like him. And not just that, they're enemies to his nation. I definitely for sure you can draw A little bit of that. For sure in here you see God's love. And thank goodness. Again, if all the people that that should be the most evangelic people that should be sharing our faith, it's the people that have come to know the love of Christ. I have been saved from my sins. If I know how bad I was, my sins were all sin, were all fall short of God's glory. I know how bad I am and was. It's only by the grace of God or what Jesus Christ faithfully did on the cross that paid for my sins on the cross The wrath of God came on Jesus. He couldn't even look at his son anymore because of the wrath that was upon him because he's judging the sin. He did everything I would need to do and you would need to do to be saved, to become a child of God. If anyone would put their faith in Jesus Christ, make him Lord and Savior, believe believe his word, believe he's resurrected. But isn't the enemy good at twisting and making us kind of just comfortable? in our salvation. While thousands, if not millions, if not billions in the world don't know Jesus Christ, don't know that free gift. For sure you see missions in the book of Jonah. God sends missionaries, calls people to go and to spread the good news of the gospel. Thank God, if anyone should be spreading the uh, the salvation message, it's those that have been saved, that, that have experienced it. They know it. A lot of lessons you can learn from this book. Uh, I probably just barely touched the surface of them all. Mark Lowry, as I close tonight, Mark Lowry, he's a very serious man. Uh, he's not, by the way. He's, he's really, really funny. He tells a story about his, his next-door neighbor during his childhood and her name was, was Helen Hampt, which is an odd name. Uh, and, and she had a son named Fritz, so Fritz and Helen. And Mark writes in his, in his book, he says, I used to beat the tar out of, out of uh, Fritz. We'd start out wrestling, and he would end up running home crying. I'll never forget Helen, the mom, that she was short and had the hairiest toes I've ever seen on a woman. She was the only person I knew who could grow her own furry slippers. She wouldn't go barefoot because she was afraid of split ends. There you go with this humor. Helen did not like me. I have no idea why, he says. But when Mama was about 13 months pregnant with my little sister, Helen walked up to Mama outside her house, pointed to the mother's stomach, and said, I hope that child isn't like Mark. Mama swung around like any pregnant woman would do and said, You listen here, Helen. One day God's going to use Mark. When I was a hyperactive kid coming home with notes from my teachers hanging on my lapels, 
Uh, Mama would read those notes, tuck me into bed, and she'd say, Mark, one day God's going to use you. Jonah lived his life with that same message beating throughout his heart. God's going to use you. Jonah experienced how he could be used by God in a marvelous way when he prospered the nation. But then one day, Jonah discovered God wanted to use him in a way that had danger and fear and intrigue and change written all over it. God wanted Jonah to witness to people he did not like, people he actually hated. We face that same decision every day. We know God wants to use us. He saves us so we can serve him. Questions, I'll end it with questions tonight like Jonah, the book of Jonah does. Are we willing to serve him only in ways that are safe and popular? Or are we willing to go where he wants us to go and do what he wants us to do with the people he chooses to work with? Basically, do we create the job description or does, does God? Will you ask God to remove all your fear and anger and frustration prejudice, whatever it is that would prevent you from joining God in his work and letting him use you as he wants to do. God loves the whole world and everybody in it. Jonah loved only himself and people like him and his vine. Whom do you love? Would you pray with me? Holy Father, I thank you that you are a gracious and compassionate God. I thank you for this book of Jonah that's been preserved for so many years. It's more than just a children's story. It's a, it's a story of a, of, a, of a God that loves all people, that wants to use people. It's a story of repentance, but yet not from the, the ones you would think are the ones that are going to repent. It's a story of your graciousness, but it's a story of also your, your call people, your followers, that at times uh, don't like the very thing that saved us. For whatever reason, the enemy twists your work and twists your love and make us not wish that all peoples come to know you. If that's in our hearts, I pray that you would give us, uh, that we'd repent of that and seek your forgiveness. Because that's hatred, that's not love. You're a God of love, you're a God that continually gives everything that you could give, you gave your son so that people might come and know, know you. May we be vessels, may we be uh, clay pots that can be used and molded how you would use us. If there's anyone in here that's feeling specifically through your Holy Spirit that they're calling you to ministry or calling to, I need to do fill in the blank because God is saying I need to do that, I pray that we would make, that, make sure it's from you and then that we, we would be obedient to that and trust that you'll take care of, of those that you call. Thank you for the book. I thank you for each person in here. I pray that we would um, repent of our own anger. That's not righteous anger. It's just anger. Whether it's at you or at other people that you created. Help us to see people the way you, you love them. And help us to love people like that and give you the glory. We live in a world that doesn't, doesn't know love. We know hate. And I pray that God's people, that your believers would Show what love is. Live it out. Love like you love. We'll give you all the glory for that. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.